It's good to be with you this morning and the privilege of opening God's Word with you today. So if you could grab your Bibles or turn in your app to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there should be some in the seats around you. Black hardcover one. We're in the book of 2 Timothy and today we're going to finish out the letter. Next week we'll be uh, doing a reading service. So we'll go back and read through all of First and Second Timothy um, together. So we'll look forward to doing that next week. As you're turning there, would you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word? We will start in verse 9 and finish the book. Here are the final recorded words of the Apostle Paul. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demos, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments." Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed, and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prissa and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth and I left Trophimus who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word to us this morning. We thank you for the Apostle Paul. Lord, we thank you for uh, what we've been able to learn in this series, reading through First uh, and Second Timothy. God, I pray this morning that you would guide your words to the places in our minds and our hearts that need it. God, I pray that you would convict, that you would um, encourage, um, God, that you would remind this morning more than anything, we pray that you would be made to look beautiful and glorious this morning through your word. Um, God, I pray that you would help this to be an amazing time of worship even as we sit and receive your word. pray that you would speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, I still am one of the last few... Uh, years to have remembered uh, when we didn't have the internet. So I remember getting the internet. I know a lot of our young people don't remember life without the internet. Um, but I remember writing letters to my cousin. Um, like It would take like two or three days to get there and two or three days to get back. And we were like little pen pals. I remember doing that. I remember also um, writing Valentine's in elementary school. And then when it got kind of weird in junior high school, uh, where you're trying to figure out how to sign cards, like, do I say love? Do I say sincerely? In Christ? Sounds really Christian. Should I put, what do I put at the end of a letter? And, and I think we've, we've almost lost a lot of that in our emails, in our texts, in tweets, and Facebook posts. However, we just kind of blurt it out there, get the message, and there's um, not a lot of thought put into how, do we, how we end. Every once in a while, I'll write a card and I got to figure out how to end it. And it's, it's actually a little bit awkward because I think we're so used to kind of sending out a text or something. Where are you? Okay, see you then. And it's very, very brief and to the point. And we're busy people, so we got we to gotta get the message out. I think when we get to the end of letters in the New Testament, sometimes we, we kind of skip or skim over this last part because it's just a bunch of names we can't pronounce. And he seems to be saying a really long goodbye. So we're like, okay, there's nothing in there for me. I really want some meat. And we, we tend to skip over um, these passages. And I think that, that we do that to our detriment, that there, there's importance to how Paul ends a letter, and specifically how Paul ends his last letter. 
And this is the last recorded writing of the Apostle Paul that we possess. And so I think it is very important to see how he ends this. Um, Paul is in the last few months, year of his earthly life. And I, I find it just fascinating to see how faithful and focused he was at the finish. And so that's what I've titled the sermon this morning, A Faithful and Focused Finish. I think that, that that's probably what overwhelmed me the most about this passage, not merely details and names, but how a man in a prison awaiting a death sentence is so focused on others and on the task that he's been given. He's not given up. Uh, he's not thrown up his hands. He is still writing. He is still reading. He is still sending. He is still interested in receiving visitors. He is, above all, a human being who we can actually relate with. I think sometimes uh, Paul is Saint Paul. He has cathedrals named after him. And he has statues and all of these things. And we tend to unduly put him a little too high. We should look up to him. But we also need to remember he's a, hu- he's a human being. He, he struggled with some of the same things that we struggle with. And I see we see, we think we see his humanity here in this passage. So what I want to do this morning is I kind of want to walk through all the verses, um, just kind of look at the outline, explain it all. And then I want to go back through and just note seven observations. Uh, no doubt there could be dozens more made, but seven um, key observations that, that I thought were important as I went through this final passage. So let's kind of dive into the text here. There's a lot of names, uh, a lot of places, and so I want to orient us there and so that we can figure out what is going on. You'll remember that Pastor Ron has given us some background into uh, the timeline here of Paul's life. We've seen some pictures of some drawings of, of what it may have been like for Paul to have been in prison But here we are at the end of Paul's life. He has given a charge to Timothy. And in these last few verses that we covered last week, he has said the famous words, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That's in verse 7. And in verse 9, we see a very human, lonely request. Do your best to come to me soon or quickly. Paul desires Timothy's presence. He wants him to be with him. Just turn back in your Bibles to chapter 1 and look what Paul had said about Timothy in verse 3. We can see how Paul felt about him. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Paul loves Timothy. He loves this man who has become like a son to him. And he desires his presence. Just a simple presence. He wants Timothy to be with him. I think that that's a good reminder for us. To be reminded to be with each other. Just to be with people is an important thing. It's interesting that the next person that Paul mentions is... Uh, a young man named Demos, who is mentioned in Colossians and Philemon as a fellow worker listed alongside Luke. But here at the end of Paul's life, we see a, a young man who, in love with this present world, has deserted me. Paul, again here, you can kind of sense some of the anguish that he feels as Demos has left. And not just to go on a mission, as we'll see some others have, but he's deserted. He has gone away. Why? Because he has fallen in love with the present world. We don't have a lot of details for what exactly happened, but apparently his, his love for the things of this world, for the things of this age, for temporal things, um, overcame his desire for eternal things. And perhaps we might understand the temptations that Demos was feeling as he's in Rome, the capital of the world, and his mentor is in a pit awaiting trial. Uh, no doubt it's, it's not uh, exciting to be uh, known as the friend of the guy on death row. Um, and perhaps there was some pressure. Perhaps um, Demos, after days of visiting Paul, just walked through Rome and was tempted by uh, a great capital city. Whatever the case, Demos has left. Paul feels his loss. He has been p- betrayed. 
And then we, we see that Paul lists two more, and, and it's, it's very clear that these are not in the same category as Deimos. Deimos is in love with the current world, with this, with this world he has left. However, Crescens, we see in verse 10, has gone to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. We don't really know anything else about Crescens. Just another name, unless we remember all the names that Paul lists personally in these letters. Meaning, there's a connection. There's a connection here that Paul has gathered around himself a band of brothers who have gone out from him on mission trips to go plant churches to spread the gospel to those that Paul was not able to reach. Titus we know about. In fact, it's the next book in your Bible. Um, Titus was another young man that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to, very similar to some of the things we see in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. And Titus goes to a region called Dalmatia, which interestingly is not that far away from present-day Kosovo, uh, where Joel serves. I was looking at the maps there, and this is um, probably in the region of Bosnia-Herzegovina, right across the Adriatic Sea from Italy. And so Titus has gone on that trip to Dalmatia. Look at verse 11, another, another name that we're familiar with. Luke alone is with me. Perhaps Luke was there treating Paul. We know that Luke is called the beloved physician. So perhaps Luke has decided that he's going to help Paul out physically. Um, just think about the Apostle Paul's life. The beatings, the shipwrecks, the travels, um, the sacrifices that he made. I, I imagine he was probably not in the best shape sitting in a, a pit awaiting uh, a sentencing from perhaps the Roman em- emperor. It's speculation, but Luke is there and Luke alone is there. You, again, you see Paul saying, everyone's gone, <laughs> except for Luke. Everyone's gone, except for Luke. The presence of Luke um, is important to Paul, but he longs for more. Uh, there's also speculation that Luke perhaps wrote this letter. Um, we know that, that Luke wrote uh, two books in the New Testament, Luke and Acts, which make up almost half of the New Testament. Um, he's, he's an able writer, so perhaps he was the one that wrote down these words from Paul to Timothy. Whatever the case, Luke is the only one that is there. Next, we get an instruction from Paul to Timothy, and he says, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. And I think that this is important to go back and take a look at to remind ourselves of what is going on here. Pastor Ron mentioned this a couple of years ago when we talked about, when we went through the entire book of Mark over 14 months, but to see the transformation and the life change. So go back to uh, the book of Acts. Go back to the book of Acts. Go to chapter 13. Chapter 13 of Acts, Paul and Barnabas are sent out by the church in Antioch on the first missionary journey. And they've taken along John Mark, as you'll see in verse 5. They had John to assist them. So John begins this trip with the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. He is, um, who knows what exactly he's doing, but he's serving, he's assisting, he's coming alongside um, both Paul and Barnabas on this months-long trip. Now go to 13.13. Look at... Verse 13, now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, that was on the island of Cyprus, and they came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem, but they went on. That's all that we get there, that's, that's, that's it, John left them, so John takes off. And um, if you know the book of Acts, you, you know the negativity here, but it's important to note that, that all is mentioned at first is that Mark has left. He has gone back to Jerusalem back to his home. But turn uh, a few chapters over to chapter 15. Chapter 15 of the book of Acts. And probably a few years later, Paul says to Barnabas in verse 36, chapter 15, verse 36, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Again, it's interesting that as I read this this week, I think Luke is even careful how he writes this about Mark. He's gracious in how he describes this. 
um, because there is nothing uh, specific implicated as, as a sin that Mark did here. It just said that he did not continue on in that first trip. So Paul thinks it best that he not come. However, we see that, verse 39, there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. So Paul and Barnabas actually cannot work together on this next trip because of a strategic distraction, a strategic disagreement. Paul will not take John Mark, Barnabas will. Now we do know from further looking at the New Testament that Barnabas and Mark are cousins. So they have a little bit of family drama thrown in there as well. But it's interesting to see that this was what we read through the book of Acts. This is what we see about Mark. There was such a disagreement over him that Paul and Barnabas split up. Paul gets a new partner, Silas, and they continue on. And we hear nothing more of Mark in the book of Acts. If you just read the book of Acts, that's kind of the taste that you're left with. Um, but if you read First Peter, and if you read in the, letter, the later letters of Paul, you'll see that Mark is once again involved in the ministry of both Peter and Paul. That's not bad. <laughs> and so Mark is now not, he's not stigmatized. He's not someone that, that Paul has held a grudge against. In fact, if you go back to 2 Timothy chapter 4, notice that Paul says, get Mark, bring him with you, for he is very useful to me. Very useful to me for ministry. So Paul wants Timothy to come, and he also wants him to pick Mark up on the way and bring him there because he is very useful. We'll have some more words to say about that in a little bit. Verse 12 uh, Tychicus, who comes up a few times in the New Testament, has been sent to Ephesus, perhaps to replace Timothy. Um, perhaps this is a replacement. Timothy, come to me. I'm sending Tychicus to take your place there in Ephesus. Whatever the case, Tychicus is one of these other young men that Paul has surrounded himself with, that is, he's able to send out on missions. Verse 13, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Troas is a port city on the edge of um, Asia Minor. We don't know who Carpus is. All we know is that he is um, a believer, probably, who has a cloak that Paul somehow left. So there's all kinds of speculation as to the timeline and the chronology here. When was Paul re-arrested after we think that he was um, released at the end of the book of Acts, after the end of the book of Acts? Whatever the case, somehow Paul had left a cloak. And it's interesting, this is um, a heavy garment, most likely like a poncho, the hole um, in it to go around your head, no sleeves, but a very heavy uh, cloak that would come in handy for winter in a pit in Rome. Uh, the Romans were not the kindest uh, jailkeepers, and so Paul here has to provide for himself with a cloak. Again, we just see another side, uh, another human side of Paul. He needs warmth. He needs another item of clothing. He needs this cloak to be brought to him. You'll notice also that he asks for the books and above all the parchments. Uh, there's, again, there's some debate about what the difference is between these two, uh, but the books are probably written on papyrus, uh, which was a little bit more of, um, it was a good, a good resource to write uh, on, but the second resource there, parchments, was probably made of animal skins and actually was uh, erasable. Uh, if you had the right tools, you could write on the skin, erase it, and use it again. There's been debate about what did he want these for. All we know is he asks for the books and above all, the parchment. So some would say he wants his copy of the Old Testament. Um, some would say that he wants some of his own writings. Uh, that was common in this time that, that you didn't have a flash drive to keep all your stuff on. Um, and so you needed to keep some of your own correspondence or even thoughts or uh, perhaps copies of letters Whatever the case, Paul wants these documents. Whether he wants to read them or write on them, we don't know. But he wants them to be brought to him. Verse 14, we get another name. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. And in this, in this section, um, Paul kind of transitions from his inner circle, all these names of people that had served with him, and he moves on in verses 14 through 18 to talk about opposition, divine support, and rescue. And the first opposer here is Alexander. Uh, perhaps he is also the one mentioned back in 1 Timothy 1.20, um, Hymenaeus and Alexander as heretics, those who uh, Paul was actually telling Timothy they need to be they need to be taken out of the church at Ephesus. They are causing too much harm. So there's been debate over whether that is the case. 
no matter the case, Alexander the coppersmith, notice this, has done Paul great harm in his deeds, verse 14, and verse 15, Paul warns Timothy of strongly opposing the message. So this man is, is the work could be vehemently opposed to Paul. There's, there's, a, there's a hatred, an animus towards Paul. It, it could be that he's in Rome stirring up rumors um, about Paul. Perhaps he is trying to get into some of these house churches and disrupt things. Whatever the case, Paul thinks it important enough to tell Timothy, beware, watch out for Alexander. He is a danger. Now it's interesting to know at the end of verse 14 that Paul is confident the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. And some have read some vindictiveness in, like Paul is saying, he did me a lot of harm, the Lord's going to get him. And I don't think that's the case when we read this. I think what you see is a man who is, who is so trusting in the Lord that he knows whether now or in a few weeks, in a few years, or at the judgment seat, that God will take care of this man. And so that says to me that Paul's not really all that concerned um, about taking care of that himself. That he trusts the Lord to finally rectify the situation. Paul has taken action. He told Timothy in 1 Timothy to, to kick this man out of the church. And so Paul here has, has done what he can do and he's trusting the Lord to take care of Alexander while also offering a word of caution to Timothy. Do you see how concerned he still is? He may be in a pit. He may, be, he may know his head is about to get separated from the rest of his body because of what he has said and done. But he's not done. He's focused. He has, he has men out on missions. It's, it's like he's a strategist confined to this hole, but he can't be stopped because of all the, the tendrils, the arms going out from Rome. He's sending this guy here and this guy here and this guy here. And until that head comes off, Paul's going to use it for the glory of God. He's involved. He won't give up. He won't retire. He's going to keep going. Verse 16, we see another uh, maybe desperate plea of loneliness from Paul. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Again, we're not given a lot of details here. Um, perhaps this was like a, an arraignment, uh, a, maybe for a grand jury like we have here in America, where um, the, the prisoner is told what the sentence is and then is asked to give a plea. Um, this first defense could have been what the Romans called a prima actio, a preliminary hearing to kind of get the information and see whether or not this was worth moving on. Whatever the case, when Paul shows up, no one's there with him. And we don't know. Could, could, could friends kind of hang out in the back? Or did he, did he need um, a lawyer type with him? We don't know, but, but nobody showed up. Nobody showed up. And Paul mentions that again. He says, Timothy, come to me soon. Timothy, nobody showed up at my first defense. But watch what he does. He does not throw himself a pity party like many of us probably would do. Notice what he says in the last part of verse 16. May it not be charged against them. This, this says two things. It's, it says two things to me. Paul is personally not holding a grudge against these people for not showing up, whoever they are. And secondly, he's communicating to Timothy not to hold them responsible for this. He's absolving them of not being there. Perhaps they, they were cowards. Perhaps they did not want to show up in front of the Romans. We, we can understand a fear there. So it's just incredible to me that, that Paul would say, no one showed up, but don't hold it against them. Don't hold it against them. What a forgiving spirit we see in the Apostle Paul. And then in verse 17, he continues to teach us. No one showed up, verse 17, but someone did show up. The Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. Uh, it's, in, it's important to see here that Paul, uh, though he longs for and desires and in some sense needs others to be around him, in the end all he needs is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the end that, that's all that, that we need. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet he has, by his grace, not left us um, alone. Look around this room. He's given us each other. He's given us each other to, to partner with and to love. 
What, what Paul is concerned with here is that he was able to proclaim the message in front of all the Gentiles, it says here. Perhaps he considers it all the Gentiles because he's in Rome, he's in the capital. There would have been perhaps people in the court from all over, the Roman Empire. Um, whatever the case, he has said that he was able to do it. Why? Because the Lord strengthened me. So I just wonder this morning if, if, if anyone here feels alone at work, at home, at school, maybe friends have deserted you. It is a good reminder that that is not the time to despair, but the time to look to the Lord who will provide, he will strengthen. Paul says he was rescued from the lion's mouth. Some have gone so far as to say that somehow he was in the midst of, uh, their Colosseum was not built yet, but in the midst of a Colosseum-like atmosphere and escape from the lion. I don't believe that's the case. It's, I think it's figurative. Perhaps Paul, while in this pit, is meditating on some of the Psalms. Psalm 22 mentions a lot of things about being alone, about being betrayed, and yet the Lord standing with him and rescuing from the lion's mouth. Verse 18, not only was he rescued, notice verse 18, future tense, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. And Paul, as he does, frequently breaks into doxology to him, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, here we go. The last four verses, the last words of the Apostle Paul are the final greetings. He says to greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. He mentions Erastus. He mentions Trophimus. He mentions Eubulus, Pudens, Linus, Claudia. He mentions, mentions all these people. We know a few things about some of them, especially Prisca and Aquila. They come up in several different parts of Paul's life. Paul was partnering with them in Rome and Ephesus and in Corinth. In two different places, in Rome and in Corinth, they had set up uh, a church in their house. These were dearly beloved people um, of uh, Paul. And apparently, if Timothy's able to greet them, either they're on the route that Timothy needs to take to get to Rome, or they're in Ephesus again, perhaps there as support and help for Timothy in his time of need. Um, Onesiphorus is mentioned in the beginning of, cha- of chapter 1, or at the end of chapter 1, as someone who had come to Rome to refresh Paul. And so I mean, his, his whole household is commended here and to be greeted. Uh, Erastus um, may have been the same one who was Timothy's short-term trip partner in Acts 19.22. Um, there, was a, there was a man named Erastus who traveled with Timothy then. Trophimus actually is one, if we go back to Acts 21, you go back and read that story, he's the unintentional cause of Paul actually getting arrested in Jerusalem. Trophimus was a Gentile, and some of the Jews in Jerusalem, in order to stir things up and try to get Paul in trouble, had claimed that because Paul had been walking around Jerusalem with Trophimus, he must have taken him into the temple where Gentiles were not allowed to go. And that stirs up a riot. So imagine, imagine me and Trophimus, that, that that's on your record, accidentally uh, instigating a riot against your boss. But that is Trophimus. Apparently he was ill at Miletus when Paul last left him, and Paul tells Timothy of this news. Look at verse 21. Do your best to come before winter. He already told him to come. He really wants Timothy to come. And here he gives him instruction. Perhaps we can tie before winter with the cloak. He wants a cloak. So bring it before winter. But also, um, uh, on the Adriatic, you did not travel in between the months of November to March. On the winter, they just shut down boating on that part of the sea. So perhaps <laughs> Paul is saying to Timothy, okay, pack your bag, let's go. Uh, some have said perhaps this tells us that this is uh, late spring or early summer in order for Timothy to um, cross over the Aegean Sea and then into uh, crossing the Adriatic Sea to get to Rome. He's telling him, come before winter. Come here. Also, another option, uh, there's a lot of speculation in this passage, but another option is perhaps he's saying, get here soon or I won't be here anymore. <laughs> I need you to come. I want to see you before the final trial. He tells Timothy, come, come before winter, do your best. And then the last, the last words of the Apostle Paul that we have are in verse 22. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Important thing about this last sentence. Uh, the Lord be with your spirit is singular. So it's Timothy's spirit. But grace be with you is plural. So we're not helped by this because of the way we speak English, but if you went to the South, it would be grace be with y'all. 
So this is to be, this is perhaps that the letter maybe was meant to be read to the entire um, congregation at Ephesus, or perhaps a, a small circle that Timothy would share the personal letter with. Whatever the case, Paul says that the Lord be with your spirit and grace be with you. Paul, the apostle of the grace of God, commends God's grace to these hearers. That's, that's the last words we have of the Apostle Paul written down. We don't know how soon after this letter was written that he was executed, but we do know um, that he was indeed executed. We don't know if he actually went before Nero or if it was before a lesser judge. But what Paul had said earlier in this book, he knew he was about to be killed. He said he knew he was being poured out like a drink offering. He was at the end. I want you to note that even though he knows he's at the end, he's not done. He's focused and he's faithful all the way to the finish. So I want to go back to the passage briefly and just point out seven things. Observations from the finish line I have there in your notes. Observations from the finish line. And the first one is prize partnership. That's number one, prize partnership. If you just read through this, you see, I think my count was 16 names. Paul personally named 16. and, And by the way, at the end, if you'll notice, he says, Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. (laughs) So there's a bunch of people here. But Paul is not a lone wolf. Um, Paul is not one of those guys that's going to buck everybody else and go run around and do his own thing. Um, If you read the Apostle Paul's letters and you read the book of Acts, he is constantly surrounding himself with people. Um, He he has no no ambition to be the one. Um, he plants a church. He, he calls people to repentance. He sees people saved. And then he leaves the church. And he, and he leaves people that he raised up to be the pastor. And he does it again and again and again and again and again and again. He prizes these partnerships. And then we ought to do the same thing as well. We ought to follow Paul's example to Timothy here to prize our partnerships. Go read Romans 16 and see all the names that Paul mentions as far as partnership goes. Paul was a people person. And I don't mean like an extrovert. He may have been. But he, he was someone who needed people, who loved people, who poured into people, who sent people out. This was who Paul was. And this is the reason was, is because he was saved, not on his own, but he was saved as, as a group of people were saved. He was saved along with all these others and he saw himself just in the midst of them. A fellowship of believers who were all saved to go and spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 10 says, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Don't do ministry on your own. Bring people alongside. Have people praying for you. Um, Gather people around you. Older people in this congregation, grab a younger person and bring them with you to do ministry with. We must do this together. We must prize partnerships. Uh, As a church, a a very obvious way that we do this is by partnering with missionaries. If you look at the list of missionaries that we have, there's no way we could support them on our own. But we partner with the missionaries and with the other churches that are partnering with those missionaries to send them out. Uh, The Jenkins were here recently and they needed to raise a thousand dollars. We didn't raise a thousand dollars a month for them. But some of you gave ten dollars a month. Some of you gave fifty dollars a month. And some people at other churches gave different amounts. And they go home having reached their goal because this is a partnership. We need to prize partnerships. We must do this or we will not survive. Observation number two is forgive. Forgive. Uh, Just just briefly here, um, Paul has forgiven John Mark. He says, Mark is useful to me. He's not held a grudge. He's not holding on to something that happened 20 years ago and saying, that's the guy that ditched me. Don't we do that? I don't know if I can trust that person. Why? Well, 20 years ago. 20 years ago? That's a long time. Are you holding on to that? Paul doesn't have time to hold on to these kinds of things, and we don't either. We must offer forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32 says that we need to forgive as God forgave us. In Christ. And that's, I think, the key here. If we are to be a forgiving people, we are to know the forgiveness that's been offered to us. Paul was keenly aware of his past. You don't think Paul thought about the people that died because of his work in digging them out? 
Paul was on his way to Damascus with a letter from the high priest to go get these people of the way and throw them in prison. He cast votes, he says in another place, for their death. Paul is very aware of his past and of his sin and all the more aware of the forgiveness of that sin. And we sang a song uh, that said, our shame was deeper than the sea. Remember what the next line was? His grace is greater still. What a good metaphor. That's a big ocean out there. And yet, God's grace is deeper than that. If we know the forgiveness that's been granted to us, then we need to be readily able to give forgiveness out. Remember Peter coming to Jesus, thinking he was just a really gracious guy, and said, how many times should I forgive Jesus? Should I forgive my brother? Which I think is funny, because Andrew's probably standing over there, Peter and Andrew, part of the twelve. Should I forgive him this many times? And Jesus just ups the ante. Jesus goes, now how about 70 times 7? Which wasn't meant for Peter to go, oh man, I got to keep 490 things. No, the point was, you just keep forgiving. Just keep forgiving. Keep forgiving. Keep forgiving. Keep forgiving. Why? Because you've been forgiven much. Here, here's, here's how I think of this. Um, I know you're a sinner. Okay? In fact, I've seen some of you sin. All right? I, I may have uh, confronted you on some of that sin. But you know whose sin I know the best? I know mine the best. I know my wicked heart. And so if, if, I, if the person that I am most acquainted with, and I know that, those dark secrets, those sins, if I know those have been forgiven, I don't know your deepest, darkest secrets. I don't know all of your sin. I don't need to know. I know that Jesus died on the cross in my place for my sin as my substitute. He did that for me. And if he did that for me, then I ought to be able to do that for my brothers and sisters. We, we need to be a people that forgive. Paul was one of those people. Well, observation number three is love learning. Love learning. I, I really want to read into Paul asking for the books and the parchments. Uh, I want to read into that he's getting his library back and he's just going like, to get it and kind of like hold it and stroke some of those scrolls because he loves them so much. We don't know what, what the scrolls or parchments were, but whether he was reading or writing, Paul was devoted to learning. Paul was devoted to learning. Let me talk to those who have grown up in Christian homes or you that have been saved for decades and decades and decades. You've read the Bible 73 times. There's still more to learn. There's still more to learn. We ought to love, love, love learning. And the primary place that we need to spend our time learning is in this book. How many of you have read this book and you've read something in it that you've read a ton of times before and you say, wait a second, I never noticed that before. Anybody done that? Isn't that amazing? What a great book. I don't go back and reread books a lot. I don't have time. I have too many books to read to go back and reread other ones. But this book, this book is a treasure trove and we need to be devoted to learning it. And we also need to love learning the things that God has put um, in, in our DNA, in the way that we're wired, in the way that we're made. We need to pursue learning. And there's practical reasons behind that. Uh, if you don't keep learning, your, your brain stops making connections. You, you, you start to slow down. Um, that's a practical consideration. But, but how good it is to know more about God's world and how he's made things to be. How good it is to interact with those who are much smarter than we are and have written these books and to learn and learn and learn. We are tempted to think that we've arrived sometimes. I just read the book of Acts. I'm not going to go to that Bible study. Why? Because you already know it all? <laughs> Be careful. Be very, very careful. This is very easy for me to do. Um, when I graduated from seminary in December, I can't remember, it was 20-something years of private Christian education. I had Bible classes all the way through. Um, I, I've, read, I've read this book before. Um, I've heard arguments before. If I ever get to the place where I don't want to know more about this book, fire me. I want to know more and more about this book. Older Christians, we need you. We need you. Because you have learned more than we have. We need you in our discipleship relationships, in our community groups, in our Sunday school classes. We need you because we need to know what God has taught you. So love learning. Number four, expect opposition. Expect opposition. We, we've seen this throughout First and Second Timothy. 
scoffers, we've seen sinners, we've seen that things are going to go from bad to worse. Paul warned Timothy in chapter 3, verse 12, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So Paul did not have a rosy outlook when he showed up into a city and thought, this is going to be a piece of cake, I'm going to plant a church here. If you go back and read the book of Acts, uh, Paul was taken outside of a city and stoned to, um, to death, that's what they thought. I would love it. Go back and read that that story. I I forget which city it is, but it's right there in chapter 15 or 16. Paul is dragged outside the city, stoned. They leave him for dead. And the believers go out and get him. They go back in the city the next day. He leaves to go to the next place. Unbelievable. Paul expected opposition. He knew it was going to come. And if we don't expect opposition or if we're surprised that the culture doesn't like us or that things, things and people and structures and governments are opposed to us, then we, we haven't been paying attention. Jesus said the world hated him and so it would hate his followers. Now those who are in darkness, light is blinding. Do you remember that? When your eyes were opened, it was a glorious thing, but there was also some, some things that weren't quite so comfortable. You, I have to give that up? When the light breaks into a dark place, it's blinding, it's annoying, but it's life-altering. And so we go into dark places expecting darkness to be there you understand what i'm saying like we don't we don't go into dark places thinking oh well they'll like me because i'm a christian (laughs) We, we expect opposition peter tells us that satan is prowling around like a what yeah not like a little uh cat right like a lion what's he doing he's seeking those who he can devour and this is satan's aim to deceive the nations and to turn us against Jesus. We need to be vigilant. And so if we expect opposition, that doesn't make us cynical or pessimistic. We just be, we're just realistic. We're realistic. And again, that's remembering who we were. If you remember who we were, then that helps us to understand how those who have not yet been brought to a knowledge of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, we know where they're at. And so we expect opposition. Number five, keep the main thing, the main thing. Keep the main thing, the main thing. I'm just astonished at Paul. He goes to this first defense, he tells us in verses 16 through 18. He shows up. What does he do? Well, in verse 17, he, he shares the message. He fully proclaims the message. What's that? That's the gospel. So, so Paul is determined in this instance and in all instances to find a way to tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ. He wants to, to get that in there. If you go back and read the last probably six or seven chapters of the book of Acts, you'll see Paul again and again before Felix and Festus and Agrippa and he's, and he's before the Sanhedrin. And I'm just amazed at how quickly he just makes a beeline for the gospel. In this group, how can I get there? In this group, how can I get there? This, this is the main thing. Paul was focused. He didn't lose sight of what Jesus had called him to do. He knew what he had been called to, and he kept the main thing, the main thing. And that, that's, that's a call for us to not, not to go beyond the gospel. Like, oh, that's for evangelism and people coming to Christ, and now that was nice then. Um, how good it is to meditate on the gospel, to remember when, when you're struggling with something, when when someone around you, a coworker, is struggling with sin, when your children are struggling with sin, it is good to go back to the gospel and to remember Christ on the cross in our place for our sin, risen from the dead, ruling and reigning at the Father's right hand. It's good news, and it's a good news that we have to share. Number six, rethink safety. Rethink safety. Um, I find that uh, when, when I lead a, a mission trip to wherever, Tijuana um, or uh, Guatemala, that almost the first concern is safety. And I get that. That's, I was driving on curvy roads from Big Bear yesterday. I was thinking safety. Um, but we are so wired in America to think of safety first, that safety is the most important thing, that my safety, my personal safety, my, my children's personal safety is the most important thing. Look at Paul and look at his utter disregard for the importance of his personal safety. Go read the book of Acts. Now, he's not, he's not foolish, 
it seems foolish from a worldly perspective. He, he's, not, he's not foolish, but he does not step back because something is unsafe. Well, I, I shouldn't share the gospel here because they might beat me. Okay. These people need to hear the gospel. And you'll notice here in, in um, chapter 4, verse 17 and 18, that his primary concern and his primary understanding of safety is eternal safety. Um, temporal safety is nice, and I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for it. Um, but, but often it begins to overshadow things. So, so parents, when you send your children out on a mission trip, pray for their safety. Please do. We appreciate that. <laughs> We've been in some interesting situations driving in places that we, we appreciate your prayers. But you know what we need more than your prayers for safety? We need your prayers for effectiveness. We need your prayers to accomplish the mission that we've been given. And so if, if someday somebody is, is injured or dies on a mission trip and it wasn't because of something stupid or foolish, um, you know what? That was part of the risk all along. It's a risky thing in this world to live for Jesus Christ. And so we want to not be the ones that shrink back because of risk. We want to be wise. God's given us wisdom to make right decisions. But we want to be those who are ready and willing to go. Adoniram Judson was a missionary in the 1800s, and he wrote a fantastic letter to the woman he loves, Father. And basically said, I want to marry your daughter, and she might die in the mission field. She might get sick, our kids might die, and it might be a horrible thing, you might never see her again. Can I marry her? Her dad said yes, which is grand. It's a good thing for him. But, but, but let's be realistic about this world. Let's be realistic about the world that we live in. In Acts 20, verse 24, Paul said, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Is it worth it to risk for this gospel? I think it is. Number seven, hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord. And this is related to those verses, verse 17 and 18. Hope in the Lord. Paul's hope was, Paul had wanted people there to assist him, but Paul's hope was not, oh man, no one showed up, now I'm toast. Paul's hope was the Lord's with me. And notice, notice that he's, he's in prison on death row and he uses the word rescue. So he goes to his trial, and when he's done with his trial, he's taken back to the pit and thrown in the pit. He didn't get rescued. Okay, SEAL Team 6 didn't go in and get him. He's still there in the pit. But his wording is that the Lord rescued me, and he will rescue me. And not only that, he'll bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Paul's hope is utterly in the Lord. The Lord is the one who will rescue, and the Lord is the one who will rescue us. The Lord is the one who will rescue us. And so our hope needs to be in the Lord, not in our spouse or our children or our pastors or our church or our employer or our 401k or the stock market or our military. Our hope is in the Lord, just as Paul's was. Well, the, the series has been titled Entrusted, His Purpose, Our Focus. Um, and I, I just remember back to the early days of Paul's salvation in the book of Acts. And he was probably saved within a year, two or three of Jesus' resurrection. And Luke tells us that when the Lord told Ananias of Damascus to go see Paul, he said that this persecutor of the followers of Jesus was a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. This second letter that Paul sent to Timothy was written right around 30 years later. Now I want you to imagine at your job that you've been given an overarching task. It's uniquely yours. You're supposed to devote all of your time and energy, your team building, to accomplish this one task. Now imagine how much, how much, how much things change over 30 years. Think back 30 years ago. How different are things? What if your task never changed, that year in and year out, you had the same task, the same mission? 30 years on, could you have the same dedicated focus the same faithful approach to fulfilling this task? Paul, 30 years later, is doing the same exact thing that Jesus told him to do. He's an example to us, a Christian who obeys his master, who recognizes the instructions and follows them and him until the day that he dies. In Village, Paul's mission is, is not uniquely his, it's our mission. 
Paul's mission is our mission because Paul's mission was God's mission. So with the power of Christ in us, through the Holy Spirit of God, let's together obey a loving Father who gave His only Son for our salvation that we might accomplish the mission He has given to us to take the best news in all the world to the whole world. This is what has been entrusted to us. So let's make disciples who make disciples who make disciples of all nations for their eternal good and for God's eternal glory. As stewards entrusted with the gospel that we're to take care of, we must be faithful. There are distractions all around us, but we must work with a laser-tight focus. We need God to give us focus and faithfulness. So let's pray and ask Him to do that, even as we go from this place to our jobs and our schools and our hobbies and wherever this week. Let's ask God to give us focus and faithfulness like He gave to the Apostle Paul. Lord, thank You for Paul's example. God, so many good things in this passage. I pray that You would um, imprint them on our hearts that we might think about these things, we might put them into practice, that these would not just be um, principles and platitudes and um, that, that, that it would be something that would sink down into our hearts, that, that we would meditate on them, that they would show themselves in our actions and in our thoughts. God, we need focus. There are so many things around us to distract us. Help us to remember what our mission is, what you've called us to. And Lord, help us to be faithful God, I pray that there would not be any Demases in here. Lord, that we together as partners would keep each other accountable and would go and rescue each other when we see each other off course. Lord, so that we might present the message to all the world. God, I pray that as we go from, from this room and as we mingle and talk and as we go to Sunday school classes and learn, Lord, I pray that, that all of those things would be... Um, would be built around the central purpose, the central thing to make disciples of all nations. God, I pray that you would help our church to do that in, in all the ways that you have given us with using all the gifts. God, be with us today. And thank you for this place. More importantly, thank you for this people. In Jesus' name, amen.